we know as we go through, this is Christian Apostolic Church, and we are growing apostolic legacy. And nothing was more true, or did it remind me more, when the youth came back from NAYC, and they gave their testimonies. And it just reminded me, not that we've ever forgotten, but it was a fresh reminder as they testified what God is doing. This generation, he's still using to help the next generation grow. And as Pastor mentioned, this is the church, not the church of the future right now. Amen? And Pastor has been preaching on, and Sister Shostrand has been preaching on this subject. God lives in a three-room house. And as uh, I was listening to these messages, has it not been phenomenal? God has been moving in such a deep way, and the understanding every time Pastor and Sister Shostrand get up, there is something said that I didn't know before. There's not a single time they get up that it's not more of a blessing, a, a deeper learning and understanding that I didn't have a revelation. And I always leave scratching my head like, I've read that passage a hundred times. How come I never saw that before? And boy, when they started talking about the tabernacle plan, and I don't know if it was the recent trip to Israel and Jerusalem, um, but I have been my interest has been um, really in the tabernacle plan and the plan of the temple. Um, and I don't, they had no idea that that is where my mind and my heart has been for a while. And I'm going to walk you through what I was thinking of and where it came from. I am not in any way trying to add or go on to what they have said already because this is more like a, a rabbit hole. <laughs> based on what they've been talking about, uh, to reiterate some of their points and to have a different understanding of what it is. So I want to start. This is the tabernacle plan. This is the uh, image that they put up, and it shows uh, the outer court with the altar of burnt offering, the laver. It shows the inner court um, with the table of showbread and the uh, lamp and the incense altar, and it shows the Holy of Holies with the Ark of the Covenant. And I'm going to go back and start with you where my interest was, and that was reading this passage in Second Chronicles chapter 20. And I won't read, I mean, you should read the whole chapter. It's a very familiar story. It's, it's, I've heard it many times growing up. And you should I probably, I would imagine, be familiar with it. Um, so I'm not going to read every verse, but I'm going to read a few. And I'm sorry, I won't tell you how many slides are in the slideshow. We'll just let that be a surprise. Hopefully it won't feel like that many. Second Chronicles chapter 20 starts like this. It came to pass after this also that the children of Moab and the children of Ammon and with them others besides the Ammonites came against Jehoshaphat to battle. That was a great host. The Ammonites the Moab, Moabites, and then others besides came along against Jeho Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat stood in the congregation of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord, notice that, before the new court and said, as I imagine anybody would when they're faced with a tremendous enemy like that in a situation like that, 
he stood up and he did something kind of remarkable. He said, O Lord God of our fathers, art not thou God in heaven, and rulest not thou over all the kingdoms of the heathen? And in thine hand is there not power and might, so that none is able to withstand thee? He's, he's going on God's pride right now. And verse 7, Art not thou our God, who didst drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel, and gavest it to, to the seed of Abraham thy friend forever? And they dwelt therein, and have built thee a sanctuary therein for thy name, saying, now notice that, they built a sanctuary. It was in David's heart to build it, but he wasn't allowed to do it. Solomon built it. And if you remember, Solomon stood, and when he prayed, he prayed a lengthy prayer, but he said what Jehoshaphat is repeating in verse 9. In verse 9, he is quoting Solomon, and he says, If, when evil cometh upon us as the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we stand before this house and in thy presence, for thy name is in this house, and cry unto thee in our affliction, then thou wilt hear and help. And Solomon prayed that whenever we're faced with a situation and we turn to you, turn to this house, and we pray, God, you, you will provide and make a way. And Jehoshaphat is standing there with this great host, this great enemy, and he says, reminder, Lord, just want to say, remember when Solomon said you would do this? Now I'm standing here in his shoes, king over Israel of Judah, and I'm saying, I need help. And I'm praying the prayer, I'm praying in this house, I'm praying to you, and you said you would help. And it goes on, because after this prayer, um, the best way I can liken it for us to sort of understand, it seemed to me like, as I read this passage, it's like um, when the preacher's preaching, and then it just... Uh, a sudden hush comes over, and, and we might hear a tongues and interpretation. Someone in the crowd will prophesy, right? That's what happened in this case, except it wasn't a tongues and interpretation. But Jehoshaphat finished his prayer, and I don't know what he was expecting. I don't know that he knew what he was expecting. It just, he ended his prayer, the whole congregation was there listening. And then we get to verse 14. And upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jeel, the son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, I want you to circle that. We're going to come back to that. Came the spirit of the Lord in the midst of the congregation. And he said, and I don't know if Jehaziel was expecting to be used. Here it is. The king has just prayed. They're faced with a great enemy. And the spirit of the Lord chooses to use Jehaziel. And I'll show you why in just a moment. And he said, Hearken ye, all Judah and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem, and thou king Jehoshaphat. Thus saith the Lord unto you, Be not afraid nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Hallelujah. The sons of Asaph. We're going to come back to that, but just a quick preview. They were the worship leaders. 
the sons of Asaph were the ones who were leading in worship. Next slide. We're going to skip a few verses. We get down to verse 17. Ye shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves. This is still God talking. Stand ye still. They had to set themselves. And then he said, just stand still. They had to prepare. And he said, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord with you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Fear not, nor be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out against them, for the Lord will be with you. And verse 18, and Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And it goes on, verse 19, it says, and they stood up to praise the Lord God with a loud voice on high. They worshiped. When they got this word from God, the whole thing responded, the whole congregation responded in worship to the Lord with a loud voice on high. And you are familiar with what happened. They did go to battle and Jehoshaphat sent the worship leaders first. And it, I love this part. I'm going to read verse 21 and then come back. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed singers unto the Lord and that should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army and to say, praise the Lord for his mercy endureth forever. I don't know about you, but I feel like if I were to go on the front lines with my instrument and my voice, my knees might be clinging together a little bit might be a little nervous, a little scared to be the front ones, the ones going right out into battle to face the enemy first with nothing but a song. And that's exactly what they did. And I want to point out this thought too, just as an aside. When the Israelites came into the promised land and went against Jericho, it was very scripted what God wanted them to do. God told them, you're going to go to Jericho, you're going to silently march around the whole city once every day, and then the seventh day you're going to do it seven times. It was very scripted what God wanted them to do, and they did it, and at the end they shouted and the walls fell down. But here, if you read this passage, God never asked him to send the worship leaders first. That was all Jehoshaphat that was from his own heart. He had already seen, hey, God spoke through a worship leader, and we are worshiping God. We're going to start this with worship. We're going to go through this with worship. Amen? And then in the end, if we go to the next slide, we'll remember God sent the ambushments. As they worshiped God, they didn't have to lift a finger. No swords were pulled out of their sheaths. Nothing. God gave them victory. They fought themselves. And then they went and they were three days gathering in all the spoils of war. Isn't that amazing? And when they came in, when they came back, guess what they did? Verse 28 says, and they came to Jerusalem with psalteries and harps and trumpets unto the house of the Lord. They started with worship. They won the victory with worship. And then they ended it with worship. All about worshiping the great God. 
the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. And as I was studying, I got to reading that again and thinking about Jehaziel. And it gives his lineage, and it goes through, and it makes sure that you know that he is a son of Asaph. So, of course, my mind immediately is, who's Asaph? And why is it so important that we know that this guy is the son of Asaph? And so I started researching, and David, back when he had brought the ark, was you remember the story, he was trying to bring the ark to Jerusalem, and he wasn't doing it quite according to scripture, and I think it was Uzziah who tried to um, stable the ark, and God struck him, and so he sat on that for a little while, and David said, now, how can I get this ark to Jerusalem? And so he goes through a great deal of um, very specific plans. He makes sure, and I didn't want to read every scripture, it's found in First Chronicles chapter 15, but he goes through and he labels exactly who's doing what. He's going to make sure that Ark is being carried correctly. He's going to make sure that there is a worship team, there are musical instruments, and he goes on to say this in verse 16, and David spake to the chief of the Levites to appoint them, to appoint their brethren to be the singers with instruments of music, psalteries and harps and cymbals, sounding by lifting up the voice with joy. So the Levites appointed He-Man. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but this 1980s product who grew up with Saturday morning cartoons is going to call him He-Man. He-Man, the son of Joel, and of his brethren Asaph, the son of Berechiah, and of the sons of Merari before their brethren Ethan, the son of Cushiah. Okay, Ethan, I think this is the only chapter that Ethan's named. Later, they call him Jedithan. So whether that's the same person or if for some reason he was replaced, we're not quite sure. But as we move forward, it's those three, Heman, Asaph, and Jedithan, who are the worship leaders and it started here when David said, we got to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And the only way we're going to get it here is if we worship him. And so he appointed these three to be the heads of those things, the instruments, the singing, the symbols, to make sure that the Ark of the Covenant gets to Jerusalem. And uh, he does it all with worship. And so if we look at the ne next slide, David made it official in preparation for the temple. Later, if you read in uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 25, David is the one who, okay, when he was carrying the ark in, or having the ark brought in, he's the one that named those three. But it wasn't official temple worship until chapter 25 of 1 Chronicles, and he lays it out, and he's very specific. I don't want to read it to you. You might go cross-eyed, and there's a lot of names I probably can't pronounce. And he says, these three, He-Man, Asaph and Jedithan are going to be the worship leaders and their children and their children's children and so on. They are the ones perpetually who are going to serve in that capacity in the temple. When it's built, they're going to be the ones in charge of worship. And I might add, it wasn't just, you know, we're going to sing a song. They had instruments. They had trumpets. They had cymbals. They had singing all of it involved in this worship. Later on, Solomon, when the temple is actually built and he goes to dedicate the temple, 
he makes sure in Second Chronicles chapter 5 that those three are the ones in charge. David laid it out. Solomon says, okay, this is what dad says. This is what we're going to do. And we're going to have these three as our worship leaders. And I want you to read this, Second Chronicles chapter 5. This is when Solomon is... Uh, getting the temple ready to go. And he says, also the Levites, which were the singers, all of them, Asaph of Heman of Jedithan, with their sons and their brethren, being arrayed in white linen. And listen to this description. Having cymbals and psalteries and harps, stood at the east end of the altar, and with them an hundred and twenty priests, sounding with trumpets. We get a few trumpets on Sunday morning. Imagine 120 trumpets. That was going to make some noise. And uh, with the 120 priests sounding with trumpets, verse 13, it came even to pass as the trumpeters and singers were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever, that then the house was filled with a cloud even the house of the Lord. And it goes on to say, so much so the priest couldn't even minister in the temple because the presence of the Lord was so thick in that house. When did he show up? When they praised. When they praised with all they had, that's when God showed up. Going back, next slide. David when the ark came in, he also made the temple plans. Solomon followed him. And then about 250 years later, Hezekiah, you know, the kingdom of Judah had gone through some kings who were serving God and then some kings who weren't serving God. And Hezekiah comes to reign at a time when Israel wasn't really serving God or Judah wasn't really serving God the way they should be. And so he has a revival and he brings back the temple service. The doors had been shut. He opens the temple up again. And in Second Chronicles chapter 29, you can read about it. It says, according to the commandment of David and of Gad the king seer and Nathan the prophet. David didn't just make this up. He had the prophets in his life who were steering and directing him according to the word of God, how to worship him as they did in this temple. And that was 250 years later, still the worship of God was going on in the temple from the sons of Asaph, of Jedithan, and of Heman. Amen? That is a powerful point that if we want the presence of God, we worship him. Amen? And so I don't want, again, I'm not trying to... Uh, add anything to what pastor and sister Shustrin were preaching, but I can't help but cover some of this because it's so fascinating and so intriguing to me, and I love it. So you're going to have to buckle up a little bit. Um, I'm going to use a handy-dandy laser pointer, and we'll hopefully see some things that are pretty maybe new to you. Um, maybe you already know this, and that's great. I'm learning, and if I didn't learn it, I didn't learn it from some of you who should have taught me. Just say it. All right, next slide. Oh, I skipped one somehow. 
Can you go back one? There we go. That's it. So after we've asked who's Asaph, who are the sons of Asaph, why is that important? Now, my question was, how did this temple actually operate? What was it like? I've heard the tabernacle plan my whole life. I've heard about the altar and, and the laver and everything, but how did it actually operate? What did they actually do? And I can't go through every detail because it, it's too much for us to cover. We could do weeks and weeks to go over the details of how the children of Israel actually worshiped in the temple. But there are some details that are sort of cool, and I'd like to share them with you. So here's the temple, and this is a little bit, uh, I did want to say before anybody says anything, because I guess I'm a teacher and I'm worried about copyright issues, this comes directly from the Temple Institute and their website, and so um, if you have any questions or want to research further, go there, it's full of great information, and then rabbit holes. Like I was clicking, 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 looking at all kinds of interesting things, but here we go, the Temple Institute, and... Ooh, right here is the outer court, and this is the altar that we're familiar with. And I'll describe some of this other stuff here in a moment. Here's the laver. I couldn't find a picture with no labels, so this was the one with the fewest labels, and it still has the copper label there. But there's the laver. Here is the holy place, including this little area here. This is the holy place, and then right here is the holy of holies. Okay, so here's the altar of incense. Here's the lampstand with some stairs leading up to it. That was new for me. Here's the table of showbread and the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. All right, so as we go through this, um, I wanted to also just point out, in case you get lost, north is up here. So the doors were facing east, and the Holy of Holies, you would walk toward the west. All right, so let's start with the altar. Here are some pictures of the altar. And I just had an imagination, you know, in my head, I guess, from the tabernacle plan. But once the temple was built and it was permanent, they didn't use the brazen altar that it talks about in the days of Moses. They actually built this altar. The Jews believe that this location, right where the altar is, is where the hand scoop of earth God used to make Adam with came from that spot where the altar is. There's no Bible to say one way or the other, but that is what the Jews believe to this day, that that spot is the earth, is where the earth was taken that God used to make Adam. And here you'll notice that it is very tall. It's about, uh, 10 cubits. I'm, I think that's around five meters tall. Um, and it has several things going on on the top. There are several priests who can be up there at once, as you can see over here in this picture. So we're going to talk about sort of what these things are going on, but the whole thing is considered to be the altar. And this is really fascinating. Okay, next slide. So if we just take a top-down view of the altar itself, there was a ramp and it's biblical. They were not allowed to go up on stairs. They had to walk up a ramp to get to the top of the altar. And there are three piles of wood. Over here is where the actual sacrifice took place. They would put the sacrifice there to burn it on this set of 
wood right here. Over here, this was a perpetual wood pile because it was always burning. The light never went out. The fire never went out on this wood pile here. And then this wood pile up here was the altar of incense wood pile. They would use the coals from this fire to light the altar of incense in the holy place. And in the center there is just the pile of ashes that build up throughout the day from the various fires going on. And they would put the ashes in the middle, and each morning they would be cleaned up before they started the morning sacrifice. Okay? And as the priests would go up the ramp, they walked up the right side, and this gray line here was the path that they took. They would walk toward the east and go around this way, back down, and then go down the ramp this way. Every two times a day, the morning sacrifice and the evening sacrifice. And then any time throughout the day that they would do other sacrifices. But the every single day sacrifices was the morning sacrifice and the evening sacrifice. And they were the same. The process was the same. And as they went, would come around, then the priest, there are two um, like pitchers here. And these would be where the wine, and on one feast throughout the year, they would also use water, and they would pour that out as a libation offering to God right there. And they would do that with the wine every morning and every evening. Okay? So this is the altar. Now, that was new to me. I mean, I had... I had known about the brazen altar. I knew, of course, the sacrifice was burnt on the altar, but I didn't know the level of detail. And I'm leaving out some stuff because there's a whole lot more that we could go into about it. But those three wood piles are pretty cool and the ash pile in the middle. And then next slide, we'll come back to this because I want to talk about the actual morning sacrifice. And we'll go through sort of how it applies and what they did. And we'll see where worship comes in and we'll talk about why that even matters for us today, okay? And so while they went in, here we go. Here's the whole process. Are you ready for story time? Okay, here we go, the whole, the whole process. In this room is where the priests would sleep. And there were shifts. They spent so many days for their shift, and they would sleep there, kind of like firemen, Okay, they would have their shift. They would sleep here in this room. And in one of these corners, I forget which one, were stairs that led into a holy um, uh, sacred bathtub where they would cleanse themselves. Okay, every morning they would wake up. They would not sleep in their robes. Their robes were white linen, and they wouldn't sleep in them. They would use them as their pillow. And then in the morning, they would go and ritually bathe down in that, um, in that bath, and then they would put their clothes on. Now they were considered clean, and they could leave that room and go into the uh, outer court. When they were in the outer court, there are some things here to notice. These are hooks where the sacrifice was uh, hooked up and, and sort of muzzled, uh, I, I believe chained at the neck, and they would slaughter it there on those hooks would be where the sacrifice was actually slaughtered. And these tables and pillars here would be, it's kind of gruesome, this is where they would skin the sacrifice and 
take it apart to do the various things that they had to do according to the law. Um, in the mornings, before they would start this process, the priests would come out, they would get everything prepared. They would come up here and uh, clean off all the old ashes. They would prepare the wood piles and get everything burning using the perpetual fire here because that never went out. And uh, they would, before they could, so they would leave this room, come through here, do the things. And then before they could do any sacrifice, they would go to the laver of water and they had to wash their hands and their feet. They had already bathed but now, before they could actually do anything for the Lord, they had to wash their hands and feet once again at the laver of water. Then they would come through, and the priest would come up. Uh, as two of the priests would come through this way into the holy place, and right here is a door. There were actually three doors, the main door and then two doors on either side of the main gate. And this comes from Ezekiel, where they would never use the southern gate ever. It was closed and kept closed because in Ezekiel it says God's already gone through that gate and they weren't allowed to use it, so it stays closed. The other door they would go through because the main door couldn't be opened from the outside. It had to be opened from the inside. So they would go through the one gate, and it's not really well marked up here, but they would go up this way, go inside, and then unlock this great large door, and as they opened the door, the priests over here already had the sacrifice hooked up, ready to go. Over here on these shelves, here and here, these sort of uh, platforms, right here and here, is where the worship team assembled. They had the singers and horns and cymbals all ready to go, and at the sound of this door opening, and it's said that it could be heard as far away as Jericho. And I don't know if that's true or if it's just, you know, like, wow, it's raining cats and dogs. Well, you can hear that in Jericho. But when they opened that door, the sound was the cue for the priest here with the sacrifice to start the slaughter. And he would slaughter the animal. They would go through and do what they had to do to the uh, parts and pieces of that sacrifice, and then the priest would bring it up, lay it on this altar, and it would burn. And as the priests made their way around, they would come to those pitchers where the wine was and pour it out as a libation. One priest would pour out the wine, and another priest would wave a white cloth, and that cloth signified to the singers and the trumpeters to start going. And as they poured the libation, the praise would fill the house. And the singers would sing, and the trumpets would, would blow one long blast, and then three short blasts, and then another long blast. And then the singers would sing um, their whatever for that day. They had several psalms that were used in the, in the temple. And they would sing those songs, and they would sing a, a verse or two, and then the, the, the horn would blow again. A really long blow, and everybody that could hear it in the temple and out in the other court, there's another court called the women's court that's not even up here. Everybody around, when they heard that blast, would bow down before the Lord. And then they'd get up and they'd sing another verse, and then the horn would blast, and they would bow down again. And then they'd sing another verse, and the horn would go, and they would bow again, all in worship, every single morning and every single evening 
this would happen, the morning and the evening sacrifice. And as they then could go through and operate in here, the, we know the laver, I'm sorry, the lampstand, and we'll talk about that in a little bit more detail in a moment, the table of showbread and the altar of incense would be operated. And then once a year, the high priest could come into the Holy of Holies and only once in a year, and on that day, he would do it four times. He would go into the Holy of Holies four times, each time for a different reason. And then he would do it in a very specific way. Now, I've heard people talk about um, maybe because there was no opening in the middle of the curtain. It was one solid curtain that maybe they just translated through that curtain. And that's possible. But according to uh, the research I was doing, the high priest, at least in the second temple period, um, he would go in and these arrows kind of show it. There were two curtains because the first temple had a wall made of stone and it was one cubit thick that kept uh, separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. And by the time the second temple was built, it was so big that one set of stone, one cubit thick, would be too thin. It wouldn't support itself. It would fall down. And so instead of using stone, they used two curtains and had an opening in between a cubit thick. And so the high priest would enter in on this side, on the edge of the wall, go through the curtain, behind the curtain, travel through the two curtains to the other side, and then come out into the Holy of Holies over there. And then he would just go backwards to come back out. And he did that four times on that day, only once a year. It's very interesting. There's a whole lot more details that if you ever want to look it up, you'll be fascinated. At least I was fascinated by it. All right. So when we move on to the next slide, the important question, that was a lot of detail, and I kind of feel like I'm looking at one of my classes, trying to do a dog and pony show to keep people awake. <laughs> Sorry if that was too much detail, but I still find it fascinating because it applies to us today, and I want you to see why. Of course, there are psalms, and you've heard of them, psalms of ascension. So before, as they were approaching the temple, they would sing these psalms. They were already worshiping. And um, Pastor talked about the outer court being sort of our 30-fold, and the inner court, the holy place, being a kind of a 60-fold, your closeness with God and, and how you're being used. And, and then into the holy of holies is a hundredfold, and sort of the different anointings, a priestly anointing and a kingly anointing. And when we talk about entering in to the gates, entering into the uh, temple itself. The Bible says, our Father which art in heaven, in uh, Jesus, when he was saying how to pray, they said, how do we pray? And he said, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. In other words, we're going to start this thing off with praise and worship. We're going to worship the Lord. If you want to get into the presence of God, just come in praising. Amen? You come into this holy place Okay, next slide. And then you find the altar. When you're in the outer court, you find the altar. And here the altar has 
two ideas for me. I couldn't separate them completely from each other. But there's always the sense of repentance. This is the altar where really I should be. The wages of sin is death. And the sin that I've committed really should be me up there on that altar dying. And so spiritually, Corinthians says, I die daily. Paul said in Romans, mortify the deeds of the body. When I go to the altar, it is a breaking for me. It is a, my will is crashing down. I've got to get rid of this self. This thing that stands between me and getting into the Holy of Holies is my own will. Amen? And so the altar represents the sense of the self that has to die. And then you can't separate it from the ultimate sacrifice. If we go to the next slide, Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. He is the one who stepped in, and in my place, he became the sacrifice for my sins, the ultimate sacrifice. I no longer have to hook an animal to one of those hooks and slaughter it. I don't have to lay my hands on it. That's what they would do when they would bring their sacrifice to the temple. They wouldn't necessarily be the ones killing, but they would lay their hands upon the head of their animal, symbolically saying, my sins are going here. I don't have to do that anymore. Jesus did that for me. He took my sin. He took my shame. He sacrificed his body, the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all, Hebrew says, on the altar. Amen? So when I look at this altar, of course, I have that sense of repentance. I must die. But I also have to remember that there's a point. I, I, there's a point at which God says, look, I have done this. You don't have to die. There were people that used to beat themselves and, and do all kinds of things because they just felt unworthy. We don't have to do that. We don't have to go that far because Jesus said, I took the place. I've justified you. I have been the sacrifice for your sins. Amen. And as we come into the altar, then we come to the laver. And the next slide, the laver is a symbol of baptism. It's a symbol of washing your hands and your feet like the priests had to do. They'd already repented. They'd already gone through the ritual bathing, just like we already repent at the altar. And yet there has to be this cleansing of water, the washing of water. And James said, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your minds, your hearts, you double-minded. That's what the labor of water represents. And as we travel through now, that's the 30-fold. We can stay in this. And what I found really interesting, I'd never heard this before, but as I was studying, I came across in the Old Testament three ways in which people were anointed. There were three ways in which people were anointed. One was the leper. When the leper was cleansed, he had to go through a lot of rituals. He had to bring certain sacrifices. And then the priest would anoint him, his thumb and his big toe, and he would be considered clean. That was one time where they were anointed. And that's representative to me of this 30-fold because I'm no good. I'm as good as a leper, probably worse, have no hope, can't come into the temple being that way. But if I go to the altar, if I go to the labor of water, let him wash me, let that blood flow and cleanse me, then that's the 30-fold. That's the outer court, the leper's anointing, if you will. 
then you can go up into the holy place. And what we find inside the holy place is the light, the lampstand. And that's symbolic of the Holy Ghost, the spiritual anointing. And John 16, 13 says, Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. That's the Holy Ghost that will lead us, a light. The Bible says, a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. And when you go in there, then you have the table of showbread. Next slide. And in there, in the table of showbread is where we find provision. And this is what the Jews actually talk about today, that the light is a spiritual awakening, a spiritual blessing. And the table is a, a physical uh, wealth providing blessing. And what we can't get away from as Christians is when Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. When we're at the table of showbread, this is our daily bread, his word, studying his word, reading his word, having it become a part of us. That's what the table of showbread represents. And then we get to the last piece in the holy place, and that's the altar of incense. And this is really a fascinating thought for me. It's a symbol of prayer and worship where they would offer incense that was specifically made. It could not be used for any other thing. And in fact, only one family, just like the sons of Asaph, there was another priestly family who was the only family that had the recipe to make that uh, incense that was burnt on the altar of incense. Nobody else knew how to make it. Only that one family with the secret, and there was a special room, one of these rooms around there where they would actually be, and it was one of only a few rooms in the whole tabernacle or the whole temple that was guarded because nobody was allowed to know what that, what that secret was. Only those people could make that one uh, incense and offer it before the Lord, and that, that was it. No one else could know. And I feel like that applies to me. I don't know about you, but you don't know my praise. You don't know my worship. Only I can give God the worship that I can give him because he did it for me. Amen? And when I come from that altar, listen to this. This is so cool. Of course, 2 Corinthians says, for we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ. We're offering up this sweet savor of worship and praise, and nobody can praise him like I can. And this was a thought that I've, I've sort of talked about before, but it applies so much here. It was lit with the coals from the altar in the outer court. Your worship is directly linked to your sacrifice. What happened out there is going to be a direct product of what comes over here. What God did for me over here, what he forgave me from, what he washed me of, what he cleansed me from, and I come into here and offer it as my praise. It's a direct link from the outer court to the inner court. Amen? That's my worship. That's my praise. And the Lord loves it. Psalm 19, 14 says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. We're talking about worship, right? The words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. When you look up that word meditation, it's only used a couple of places in the Bible. And this is the only place where it's actually translated as anything. In the other place, they 
just left it in the Hebrew because they didn't know how to really translate it well. They said meditation, but when you study what that really means, it comes from this word higayon, and it means resounding music, a musical notation, a murmuring sound. Let the words of my mouth and the music that my heart produces be acceptable in thy sight. And when I read that verse, I come in my mind to the altar of incense, and I'm here standing before the Lord, and let the words of my mouth and this meditation, this incense, this thing that I'm offering up to God, let it be acceptable in your sight. Let the sound that my life produces. Anybody ever play a musical instrument? I don't know too much about all the musical instruments, the woodwinds and the brass I'm not very familiar with, but I play the cello, and I'll tell you, if you hit a wrong note, people know. And on a cello, like, I'm jealous of guitars because they have frets. Like, they know where their fingers are supposed to be. But a cello doesn't have any frets. You have to put your finger in the right place to make the right noise. And different cellos, that might be slightly different each time. And I don't know if you've ever gone to a uh, piano keyboard and, and, I mean, I play so well. I just uh, throw your fingers on it and see what comes out. It doesn't sound too pretty usually. Now, there are people who can play wonderfully, but I imagine there's some times when a sour note is hit. I want my life to be in tune to what God likes to hear. Let the words of my mouth and the worship, the meditation, the sound that my life is producing, let that be acceptable in your sight. I, if, it, if it's off, Lord, I don't want to bring a sour note to the presence of God. I don't want to bring my praise and him be like, yeah. I'm being honest, but you know, I, hallelujah, I sing up here all the time, so I know you've heard things, but I've heard things, and I know my own, like, oh, oh, that wasn't right. You know what I'm talking about? You've heard somebody sing a note that <laughs> wasn't quite right, or hit a note on some instrument, and it's off, and you know it. I don't want the Lord to get praise from me. That's, I don't want it to be flat. I don't want it to be sharp. I want it to at least be, let the words of my mouth and make be acceptable. At least let it be acceptable. I'd love for it to be beautiful. I'd love for my sound of worship, God, to be excellent. But at least let it be acceptable. Let me get cleaned up enough out here on the altar. Let me get cleaned out of all the junk and all the things. And wash my hands, wash my feet. Let me come before the presence of the Lord and offer a sweet-smelling savor to the Lord. Let my worship be good in his sound, in his ears. Amen? And this whole thing, it starts with worship. Throughout it, it's all about worship. And in the end, it ends with worship. And don't let me stop there. After the altar of incense is where you walk in to the Holy of Holies. That's where the presence of God dwells, on the mercy seat. That's where you spend your time 
in what you might consider the kingly anointing, where you're in the presence of the Almighty God. I hope you've all been there. I hope we go there often. And in our prayer time, pray through the tabernacle. Start with praise, then go to the altar, then go to the laver, then go to the lampstand and the table of showbread and the altar of incense, and then see if you don't end up because he loves it. He loves the worship. When he was worshiped on the battlefield, he provided. They didn't even have to fight. They just went and worshiped. He'll do that for you.